0: Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. On this episode, I'm discussing government through culture and the contemporary French right with Professor Jeremy Ahern from the University of Warwick. So, welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. On this episode, I'm talking to Jerry Ahern, who's from the Centre for Cultural Policy Studies at the University of Warwick, about his new book, Government Through Culture and the Contemporary French. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. On this episode, Discussing Government Through Culture and the Contemporary French Right with Professor Jeremy Ahern from the University of Warwick. So, welcome to U Books in Critical Theory. On this episode, I'm talking to Jerry Ahern, who's from the Centre for Cultural Policy Studies at the University of Warwick, about his new book, Government Through Culture and the Contemporary French Right, uh, which is published by Palgrave and Camillan. So, welcome to the podcast. Okay, thanks
1: for inviting me.
0: Um, this is a really interesting book because, in some ways, it, it, it's a sort of sequel to a book you you wrote, um, I guess, sort of five six years ago now, um, which looked at cultural policy in France um, from the perspectives of the left. So, could, can you tell me a bit about why you've turned to the contemporary French right um, and where this kind of overall project has come from?
1: Okay, well, overall in a very long term, I've started off doing... Two. French when I was a student into French intellectual history, then I came to French society and politics, and I guess I always looked at it from the perspective of arts, culture, the links between them. And way back, that was the time when sort of Lange was in his pomp and la politique du was very prominent. Uh, that's definitely, in my view, not the case now. Strictly arts politics is not politically uh, that prominent. Um, but I've remained convinced in France, anyway, that the link between politics and culture is very important, and that to find those sort of cultural-shaping policies of the kind that Lange once incarnated, you have to go and look for it elsewhere, and that's really been my work for the last 10 years or so. And to start with, a bit like you mentioned just now, I was looking at that from the perspective, I guess, of the left, because classically we tend to think that the left are concerned with cultural issues and the right are not that preoccupied with them. And I was quite interested in the position that intellectuals took, because in France, intellectuals are supposed to be politics, political, but not get involved in the nitty gritty party politics. I was interested in some intellectuals that did get involved in that sort of nitty, nitty gritty. Um, I guess now that we're all told to be impactful and so forth all the time, that's in a sense almost become um, a, a default position. Uh, now when I was writing that book I was conscious the more I wrote it that there was this galaxy of the right uh, and that it would be interesting to try and see how, how that fitted into my problematic um, at the same time I, uh, while I was writing it you had know, Chirac and Tiki Sarkozy being very prominent not so much intellectuals but it just struck me that they, far from neglecting culture um, they were paying a lot of attention to it, particularly Sarkozy, even if I'd have to go and find that attention outside arts policy, for sure. And that's why I kind of turned I suppose, my attention to the right and it was quite an interesting time to do it. To do it.
0: Yeah, I mean, that, that gives rise to, uh, to the two things that frame the book, I think. One is that sense of going to look for um, cultural policy, which uh, is grounded in the implicit, explicit uh, division in cultural policy, which you've, you've written about quite a lot. And then the other thing is is, is the period uh, 2002 to 2012 which, um, you know, as you say, is, is a very kind of rich and interesting period. So I wonder if we could take those two uh, frames in turn. So the theoretical starting point of uh, implicit and explicit and then why is this 10 years so interesting?
1: Yeah, no, those, are, those are very good questions. I'll take them one and then, yeah. then cover if that's okay. On the implicit-explicit, it's a kind of, I'm um, conscious it's, it's almost no longer my terms in a, in a sense, you know, that some other people have taken it up and so much the better and some people have done it in a sort of um, more restrictive sense looking at the implicit effects of arts policy and some have used it in a much more maximal um, way looking at, I don't know, not state organisations but private organisations and what have you. That's all fine with me, and there's a critical debate about whether it's any use of the tool as well, and that's all fine with me. Uh, my use in some ways, in my actual research, tends to be more, I suppose, in the middle. I, I started using the term to analyse governmental policies in particular, and so that's what I tend to do. There's no reason why everybody else has to follow that, no reason at all, but that, that's what I tend to do. Um, and. Um, I really devised it to try to come to terms with a particular problem to do with accounting for contemporary France. I, mean, I think Bourdieu said some way to understand concepts that's sometimes quite useful to see the problem they were trying to solve in the first place. And that was that once, go back to the 80s, early 90s, explicit cultural policy in France was clearly an arts policy, but it was also a culture shaping policy. And it seemed to me that after that, arts policy remains important, particularly for the artistic field, but in terms of the culture-shaping policies, the policies that are going to work on people's norms, their attitudes, their beliefs, that remains very important, I think, in French politics, but you have to go and look for it in other places. Um, so, in a sense, in the book itself, I don't talk a lot of it, I, I use it to frame it, the explicit implicit. But if I had to say, you know, where are my theoretical I don't know um, reference points, uh, you know, way below what he could do. But I'd be thinking about somebody like Stuart Hall, looking at um, Thatcher in the 1980s or the Cultural Revolution in the number of fronts, just as a way of positioning what
0: I, what I do. And that um, it's interesting actually because um, later on we'll talk about hegemony and you know the kind of the idea of shaping culture. Um, and, and why is that, that decade, that two thousand two to two thousand twelve, so interesting as an example of this? Okay, um, I'm
1: conscious that most of your listeners won't be necessarily familiar with France. No, but possibly not. Talk also, about yeah. it. Right? So I'll give some UK equivalents. So or American, or American, right. American equivalents. I suppose UK is what I'm natively mm-hmm. most familiar with. But um, so the two thousand two to twelve decade would would have a certain political self-evidence about it a bit like 97 to 2010 being new labor years 79 to 90 Thatcherite years 2002 to 2012 at political level it's an epoch as it were it's a clear right-wing rule so you've got the often two right-wing presidents the nature of the presidency changes quite a lot mm. if only you know, the fact that it becomes a five-year presidency in some ways makes it more strategic. It reduces from seven years, but it coincides with legislatures. Um, and it's also quite a good political spectacle because you have two rights, mm-hmm. a bit like Heath Thatcher, Cannon, yeah. um, you know, yeah. and Johnson, who, you know, what have you today. Um, so at a political level, it's quite interesting. At a cultural level, I think it's quite interesting as well, um, for two or three reasons, partly because it, question for me, but I think it's a question more broadly, that political shorthand that I think tends to ascribe to the left interest, preoccupation with cultural matters, and the right um, preoccupation just with the cash nexus, as it were, or business, or, or whatever. Um, I think both Chirac and Sarkozy developed very clearly cultural fronts, okay, Uh, very different cultural fronts Chirac almost as a compensation for not having anything else to do but Sarkozy to amplify what he was already doing Sarkozy interestingly described what he was doing as following the lessons of Gramsci himself so um, that was quite interesting that sort of explicit nature of it and it seemed to be a decade where um, the tectonic plates of kind of that common sense in that Stuart Hall perspective shifted a bit like he suggested it did over that chap um can i give just one very short quote that i, want, yeah, yeah. I wanted to make it the epithet of the book but they wouldn't let me because you, <laughs> you have to pay extra copyright or something <laughs> like this uh but to get a sense of what i was imagining i was doing this is Stuart hall back in 1980 saying the field of culture is a sort of constant battlefield a battlefield where no once and all victories are obtained but where there were always strategic positions to be won and lost and it seemed a good period I thought mm. from 2002 to 2012 to
0: understand that and actually it's interesting that um that comment about you know there isn't a decisive victory but there are things to be won and lost and actually all of the examples in the book illustrate that really really perfectly I think actually from um, reforms to television education reforms, um, you know some of which are almost kind of settled by the right, but some of which just don't go anywhere at all and, and fail and we might get into um, a few of those uh over the course of the conversation i think the place to start would be um, that element um, of french society that is perhaps most well known from um, contemporary political debates around the role of the state and its relationship to religion and so obviously um, you know you talk about uh lacity has been you know a really core idea to French society in the first chapter, but you talk about how it's reconfigured um, in a variety of different ways over the period the book is interested in.
1: Okay. Um yeah, laicity is one of those words where I kind of use it deli I could talk about it as I know mean, secularism or something, um but I deliberately keep it in that slightly strange sounding word in English, laicity. And so people say, well, what is it? Why is it important? And I guess there's a very short answer, which is useful for clarity's sake. I then mean, a slightly longer answer about kind of what it is, what it represents, that, that will explain better why it becomes important. The short answer is, you want to translate laicity, laicity. Easiest translation is political secularism. Okay? Uh, how you separate the state out from religion. And to understand what it means... You can contrast its original contrast is with not with religion, but with clericalism. So the idea that the clerics, as it were, of religious institutions shouldn't have power over the state and vice versa. versa. Uh, you can also contrast it to secularisation more generally, which is just people becoming less religious less, it is a particular state policy. Um, that's the short answer, and if that was the only answer it would you know, there wouldn't be much to uh, Run with in terms of um, you know, cultural polemics, uh, hegemonic kind of um, manipulation. So far, the longer answer I think is that it's also in France a political totem. Okay, we think we don't know what laicity means, but the French must. But there's this ongoing conflict of interpretation around what it can mean. For 150 years, end of the 19th, most of the 20th century, it was associated with the broad left. Okay. And the white was associated with traditionalism, like Catholicism, monarchy, etc. I'm simplifying, but until 1989, that was the lines of division. 1989, life gets complicated and interesting for an observer. 1989, you see the first prominent emergence, really, of Islam as a, um, a kind of flashpoint, really, and the lines of division. Okay, around that issue, start to shift. The left starts to divide. Firstly, between those who are defending the right of the girls to headscarves, but the right to pray right more generally, and the harder anti-clerical left that wants things religious have nothing to do, that, to do with the state. Um, so the left starts to divide. Um, the right starts to reconfigure. Okay, it didn't really want to have anything to do with the polemic to start with because it thought it might impinge on Catholicism. But its sense of protecting the nation against Islam from without, you start to get what I guess you political scientists might call an advocacy coalition coming together of left and right actors. And that's what gradually, over 10 or 15 years, leads to the famous headscarf ban in 2004 under Shirak. Okay, and by that stage, Lycite has really become part of the sort of mainstream right. Uh, uh, agenda um, and you might think that Sarkozy was really hard line on that but actually Sarkozy's really quite an interesting figure to carry uh, or to look at through here he was opposing he, was a, he opposed the ban on scarves, Um and in, in fact Shiaq tried to isolate him with that and throughout that time Sarkozy tried to adopt a more accommodationist view uh, on Islam when he was home minister so he set up uh, Muslim council and so forth in France to try and actually bring Muslim representatives within the state, which is quite a fraught enterprise. Um, we forget that now because the second bit of the big reconfiguring, which nobody could have predicted really, you know, 20 years ago, was its shift even further to the right. And Sarkozy does a kind of volte fast Part of his view, part of his agenda in accommodating Islam was to have a political way into that population to manage it. But that proved spectacularly inefficacious in the famous 2005 riots when his Muslim networks, as it were, were unable to have any effect on the the rioting youth and so forth. And if anything, Socrates does a a bold fast, takes a much more law and order, hardline uh, view on uh, Islam and starts to embrace this weird new form of laïcité, that embraces Catholicism. There's a famous visit he does to the Pope uh, in, uh, I think it's 2007, with a lot of pomp and ceremony. And he starts to construe both laïcité and Catholicism together, in his terms, as part of a wider French national culture, and insists all the more on that, so that he can take Islam largely out of that solution. Out of that, and I suppose in quotes Gramscian terms, this seems like it for two or three years. This seems like a very shrewd move. Until, of all people, the National Front sees you know, see this new recast ICT as a perfect vehicle for them, and you know they had nothing to do with ICT for you know, thirty years. Okay, and use it as a much more hard-edged anti-Muslim. All and embrace all the rhetoric of republicanism and so forth. That, so that's a bit of a long... No, alluded, no, it's a interesting. Um, but the, the sense of how within 20, 25 years, L'acité, it, it, it was a kind of object of a smash and grab hegemonic play from Chirac, and a different one from Sarkozy, then a different one from Marine Le Pen, the daughter of Jean-Marie Le Pen, um, in that sort of rightward drift of this totem, everybody wants to be seen as the legitimate interpreter of it um, and it continues as it, you know, it, we could take it past 2012 but um, that's probably enough for the, for the
0: moment. For the moment. It, it, that sense of, uh, I guess, kind of differences within and between um, the different modes of, of, of the right um, in, in French politics is, is really interesting and, and I mean th- this comes up a bit in the chapter about education but it comes up really, really clearly um, in the chapter about television, and you know you can think about this as the contrasting styles of uh, Chirac and Sarkozy, but also in terms of how they deal with the political economy of, of French television as well. So I wonder if you could talk through um, the example of that division through through television.
1: Okay, um, yeah, I'll try and do that. I mean, when I was writing this two or three years ago, I was thinking, you know, present sarkozy's television policy and it seemed like this paradox that i'd have to get over to a, an english audience but in terms of recent discussions around the bbc and so forth it, it may uh, what may strike them is the parallels to, to, to some degree um and like you suggested in your question you've got two important aspects i think of the television uh, issue as a culture shaping tool one is the political economy of television and one is the performance on Television.
0: Yeah, what was it? You call it the, the Sarkozy show? Yeah, very much. You know, he was a you
1: know for two or three years. Not now. Not really now. Interestingly, um, but he was the star of you know, French television, not just French political television. Okay. Um, well, I guess in terms of the political economy of television, we see Chirac. I mean, you have this weird thing in French politics, which we're not used to, where you have. An effective head of state president, but you have the prime minister underneath him. The way Shahatt tended to use this was he would subcontract the less popular economically kind of liberal neoliberal policies to the prime minister, and he would try and set himself up as, as his defender of um, a kind of cultural block or what. And in a sense, his television policies are a little a, a a bit like that so continuity, defending public service, etc. It's not what he did when he was on the make as a politician, but once he was a president, that's what he tended to be well, in a sense condemned to because of the impotence elsewhere. Sarkozy his kind of political economy reform. It's more interesting. I talk about it as a dual um, cultural policy. Um, and it certainly, you know, we'd now, I think, be familiar with it, but it really wrong-footed the opposition to start with. Um, and this was how he tended to perform in television as well. He would surprise people with an announcement and then introduce another surprise yeah, afterwards, yeah, say so this sort of thing. And you can see it as a kind of, um, you can see it at work in the the presentation of the policy itself. So his dual uh, policy, as it were, was first to, far from apparently attacking the role of cultural and public television, as you'd expect, appearing to encourage and indeed enforce it by taking away, decommercialising French public television, Unlike British television, public television, it has adverts, you see. So Sarkozy appeared and he said, I want it to have a much more clearly cultural role and we should take the adverts out so that market ratings don't determine what goes on, which is, you know, wind back 12 years. It's what you find in Bourdieu, Mm -hmm. sur la télévision. So this is Sarkozy as Bourdieu, okay? Um, Of course, now we can also interpret it as Sarkozy as John Whittingdale. Yeah, sort of of thing. Um, Because we can understand that... um, The real reason why he was uh, pursuing that agenda was because his extensive connections in private television, he was very close to the movers and shakers in, you know, closer than Blair was to Murdoch, for example, to the movers and shakers in French private commercial television, and they had been telling him precisely to do that so that they could pick up both the advertising and uh, uh, lose that sort of ratings competitor um, that was French public television at the time. So I said dual cultural policy because that's what he did in terms of public television. Okay? Um, and his double surprise there was that he decided to take upon himself the, the act of directly nominating the head of public television. So in a sense, turning that into his direct vessel, uh, but also this uh, elaborate exchange relations with commercial uh, television that he wanted to make international champions. That's why that was also, for him, the bigger French media enterprises became the better because they would stand on the global stage and um, uh, defend French interests and project French uh, influence. Um, so that was that was Sarkozy in terms of the political economy of uh, television. Um, I could say a little bit about his performance
0: role. Yeah, I, right? I, I found his his performance role fascinating because it it, it is such. Um, I suppose the, the British or American comparison would be with a politician who, perhaps for the first time in France, is you know comfortable within the age in which he is broadcasting. So the, the American equivalent would be you know Kennedy on television, or, or something like this. Whilst you know at the same time allowing him to push through quite significant reforms. Um, so you know you have this kind of symbolic Sarkozy show presence which, as you say, wrong foot's opponents because he's you know, seemingly um, making these statements that are allowing people to uh, get what they want about the and stuff like this, when actually the, the by-product is strongly kind of nationalist, uh, you know, outward-facing, almost, and we'll talk about this in subsequent chapters, almost a kind of a return to an imperialist uh, form of, of French cultural, uh, cultural policy. So, yeah, I, I'm interested to know how his... I guess his kind of, you know, presentation of self, his hyper-performances uh, influence that. Yes, that's an interesting question. But I don't
1: want to go too far back, but with the Kennedy, the obvious contrast would be uh, de Gaulle. Mm. Well, not really a contrast, a comparison. Um, people think de Gaulle, when he came into office, he was already 68. They think he must have been past it. But he was a past master in television, but he could control television. He owned the only television there was. Um, after de Gaulle, as government control of television started to recede, yes, it tend, the presidents tend to have rare uh, interventions, following the theory that that would make them more resonant. Sarkozy really went to the opposite extreme, to say, Chirac, and looked for media saturation. Okay, media, a kind of ongoing storytelling, extraordinary. You know, particularly in the first year or two, extraordinarily uh, intense. Um, And I suppose I'm trying to think of comparisons that would make his role clearer. I mean, you could contrast this, but you could compare with Kennedy. You could could think of somebody like Blair, who was smoothly telegenic. Sarkozy was not smoothly telegenic. He was kind of divisively telegenic. He didn't know what he was going to do quite often, and quite often he would seek those lines of cleavage, as he puts it, lines of lines of division. so, for example, there's the a press conference, people knew he was going to take advertising away from um, public television and they turn it on to the press conference. That's already quite surprisingly. And then he surprises them again by saying, And I'm going to nominate the head of television, henceforth. Um, so, yeah, there was an era of kind of unpredictability. He wasn't always, you know, you get the sense Blair always being on message, mm. as it were. he uh, was not calculatedly off people's expectations quite often and in the end that started to count against him yeah. so he always wanted to transgress break taboos and people felt he was cheapening the role with the president things well not on television but losing his rag a little bit
0: I, I, I might pick up on some of that actually because uh, this this is another interesting um, contrast within uh, your analysis of the right at least to to write, but also uh, that sense of um, yeah, uh, cleavages or transgression coming through in the attitudes to French history, um, and particularly around the idea that French history would be constructed not as something that had a you know a colonial past to be uh, thought through and, and you know perhaps put to one side and hopefully forgotten, um, but Rather that you know, I think you call it sort of anti-repentance, and Sarkozy's you know plans for uh, particular cultural institutions that would essentially say that you know France has done wonderful things, we should not be ashamed. Um, So I'm interested to know how that yeah that kind of um, that break within the right, but also that that continuity of both um, his personality and his approach to French history manifest themselves.
1: Yeah, now I was conscious writing this book that when you're looking at culture and the right, history, I mean history is important anyway in um, in the way French politics works and quite often in the other chapters I'm having to give a historical backdrop yeah. to start with um, why is that because I have to give English readers a sense of if you like the, the structures of expectation or anticipation that hang around some of these issues like la Cité, like television and yes, yeah, so a history is important as well and it seems to me um Almost to have in the division of labour between what the president does and the prime minister does, um, they talk about certain domains being ascribed to the presidency. And it seems to me that that preoccupation with national history has gradually become one of those domains. Now, in terms of, for example, the colonial or the obscure past we talked about, and it's not just the colonies; it's France's role in World War II, which is uh, important too. Um, the tradition really up till, you know, through de Gaulle, through Mitterrand, had been to skate over some of the more murky elements of France's past. Um, so de Gaulle tended to present France in World War Two as, uh, you know, a nation of just resistors. Um, and uh, Mitterrand himself, although he challenged de Gaulle in some ways, didn't challenge that particular line. What you get in our decade we're looking at, or reading, Chirac already from the mid-90s is two very different approaches to that national past. Um, Chirac, as part of his sort of almost slightly left-leaning cultural package, tries to, for the first time, face up to those dark parts of France's past and to integrate them very self-consciously into the national memory. So he does that with, in terms of France's complicity with the Germans in terms of um, um, uh, the, the Jews in, the, in, in World War II. He does it in relation to the Algerian war. Um, Chirac also inaugurates, which the socialist government before him hadn't dared to do. He sets up a museum for immigration in Paris. Okay? And so he tries to, and this is one of the things, re- I mean, he ran into problems with it, notably to be with his own right majority. Uh, But he tries to take on board some of those more difficult parts of the national past. Socrates, well, the continuity is there insofar as history was just as prominent for Socrates, but he builds it very differently and um, offensively in more than one word almost. But you know, there's a kind of sense of offense uh, there, and it's very much him. And his script writers, you have to, you know, what Gramsci would call his organic intelligentsia around him, very important in this, Uh, but setting up a vision of France's past that kind of acrobatically includes everyone from the revolutionaries to the old monarchy, from the communist resistors to the uh, sort of royalist right of the early 20th century, includes everybody except...
0: Yeah. I mean, some some of the quotes in the book are fascinating about, you know, uh, what's it we 've never given into the totalitarian uh, temptation, and then you know goes through the kind of uh, decolonizing process actually you know a, a triumph of uh, French values and you know talking um, later on about you know the values of the republican writer uh, equity order merit work responsibility, which both you know on the one hand essentially repudiates uh responsibility that the French state might have. Uh, for its past, but also at the same time sets up new lines of division.
1: No, absolutely, and almost, I mean you said that decolonisation as a triumphant process, you might almost say colonisation yeah, yeah, as a triumphant yeah, yeah. Uh, process. Um, and it's uh, striking how consciously that was done. Um, it's almost like history in the French context, it's like this orchestra, if you like, that politicians have at their disposal and that they play. And Sarkozy tried to play every Every bit of it, not always uh, convincingly, and he ran into problems with historians, notably. Um, but it's, that's the most, and I don't really resurrect in the meat of the book this implicit, explicit distinction, but that's his most explicit cultural policy, I think. He frames it in cultural terms, he even theorizes it, or at least people like Guano, who was his scriptwriter, theorized it, not in terms of Gramsci, but in terms of Levy's Toss. And again, it's not usually. Britain to be looking at a right-wing government and to find explicit references to cultural theory yeah, yeah. Uh, therein, but no, he would feature in his actual speeches, so that that was interesting
0: to and, follow. And he tries to manifest itself in a, in a museum project as well which, which ultimately failed. Yes,
1: that as well is um, part of this escalation of prominent cultural policy to the level of the president in France. You can, you can take that back to the 70s and 80s. Anybody who's been to Paris, how its skyline has changed with what the French call their grand projects, um, you know, Pompidou, Giscard Mitterrand. Each of these dozen cultural projects is a bit like a millennium dome, mm. as it were, in its own right. Um, Chirac had one. Sarkozy wanted one. It's almost what every president wanted. Um, or had to have, um, and his one was going to be a kind of museum of national history, and what's interesting about that at the, in the end is that it fails. The interesting thing about it is it's, I think it's justificatory rhetoric, which follows some of the themes you were, we were looking at there, and it's elaborated again by this um, organic intelligentsia around him, as it were. Um, and uh, yes, the fact that in the end, he runs into trouble, if you like, with the traditional intelligentsia, the academic historians who who don't like this, the fact that it's so clearly politicised and so clearly defined in national terms, when professional historians as a rule are trying to at the very least relativise the salience of national frontiers and often you know, efface them, perhaps problematically efface them, I think, altogether. Um, So yes, it runs into the sand. But that was Sarkozy's most personal cultural policy move, if you like, and its failure is an interesting an interesting story to follow.
0: The final case study really also has that sense of kind of uh, the limits um, of cultural policy but um but I think what i I'd, I'd like to to draw out by way of conclusion is um almost to put it bluntly you know did any of these things work you know it, would you say that that kind of hegemonic project succeeded? Um, you know, is the question of uh, French government, um, whether done through explicit or implicit cultural policy, one of of now, you know, the left starting from a very different terrain. Um, So, you know, the equivalent would be in the state, the argument that Clinton starts from, you know, a very, very further right position than, say, Carter was starting from. And now the idea that, um, you know, Cameron and... Subsequent or previously, the coalition started from a very uh, further right position than Thatcher began from, or Blair began from. So, so yeah, did did it work?
1: Yeah, Um, two ways of answering that in terms of did it work. Um, In terms of what do we mean by asking whether a hegemonic project works? Well, in the in the terms of hegemony, I suppose it's shaping the popular uh, mindset. Um, When I. You know, I'm revisiting this book a couple of years after writing and thinking how I might develop some of the th- some themes in it. And I guess one of the oscillations is to what extent all of this hegemonic work or ideological work shapes articulations among the general population or to what extent it responds to shifts in the population itself. Okay, um, And that... Um, in some ways, that's undecidable, but we can, you know, that's the sort of thing that I would want to go in. I and mean, then Sarkozy developed a set of themes that manifestly flew for a while, but then seemed to, it's almost like the Sorcerer's Apprentice lost control of his, that, that initially hegemonic momentum as it shifted rightwards. And the other um, part of your question is really what I'm hoping to work on a bit now is that sense of whitening what the French sometimes call as a hypothesis the droitisation, the whitening of French society, and interpret that as much in sociological terms as in strictly political terms. Why is it that some of these right-wing cultural motifs play so resonantly among particular sections of the population And one thing that, just to chime with the question you were asking me there, one thing that um, I'd like to restate, for example, is this sense that um, the Socialist Party itself have lost the working class, for example. So in that sense, you could say that hegemonic (laughs) battle did did work out at at some level. Um, And... um, People's attempts to understand why that is. Okay, The working class voters tended to peel off to the far right, the National Front, and to some extent to the mainstream right, to a far less extent than you might think to the Fond de Gauche, the far left party. And it's quite interesting, for example, to look at the difference between the programme of the far left, the Fond de Gauche, which we don't have an equivalent of in the UK, and certainly not in the US, really. And um, if you look at the difference between their programme, in the programme of the national front economically, socially there's not a big difference they're protectionist, they're anti-globalisation they're anti-Europe they're really anti-neoliberal both the far right and the far left the key difference is cultural Okay, um, and there's I, I don't really want to take sides on this particular debate because it's a problem I want to try and work on but there's this debate in the left on whether they've neglected issues of Cultural security, as they put it, which has thrown a lot of the working class, lower working class, into the hands of the far right, or whether you know you shouldn't take account of those because to do so is already to give the racist game away, as it as it were. Um, so to go back to your original question, did it work? <laughs> um, there's clearly been a brightening of uh, French society, I think. Uh, in terms of attitudes, in terms of electoral results. Mm. Okay, Hollande lot won the presidentials, but in every election since then, the left has been whitewashed and the far right has either come first or second. Okay, So in terms of answering your question, I would say hard to answer, and the kind of stuff I do in the book, you could either see as a cause of that thing in terms of how laity is reconfigured as a possible nationalist motive. So it could be a cause... But could equally be a symptom of that motif, because once it plays well, they accentuate it and so on. So, sorry, that's a bit of a cop out as an answer, but it's just kind of sort of thing I'm thinking through at the moment. And
0: it's like going to be a book, or?
1: One day, maybe, but a little way after it.
0: Thanks for listening to new books in critical theory. I've been your host, Dr. David O'Brien, from Goldsmiths, University of London. On this episode, I was talking to Professor Jeremy Ahern. From the University of Warwick about Government Through Culture and the Contemporary French Right, which is published by Palgrave in 2015.